Well, hello and welcome to Living in Exile, a podcast for folks who are in the world but not of the world, and in the church but not of the church. My name is AJ Farley, and along with Amanda Hope Haley, I host this podcast. Uh, We're going to jump right into our study this week from the book of Ezra, the combined books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll let Amanda kick us off. We are uh, beginning our deeper look into the book of Ezra. Uh, the last time that we talked together, we did sort of an overview of the book, the combined books, if you will, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, Amanda, where should we start with this? I always think whenever you're looking at a historical book, it's important to remember where you are in history. That's just kind of always where I start. So I just like to remind everybody from last time that um, here we are, Cyrus, who is the king of the Persian Empire, has just... Uh, taken over the Babylonian Empire. Um, So he's ruling a large section. Some of his people are the the former Judeans or Judahites who moved into his area. They are now called Jews. And uh, chapter one of Ezra starts with Cyrus's proclamation to to the Jews and really to his kingdom at large, that uh, he is wanting these people to be able to return to their homeland, rebuild their temple, and essentially rebuild their society. So, so um, Cyrus has, has uh, said, uh, not only is it okay or acceptable, but it is to be encouraged for Jews to return back to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess pick up the story from there, if you would. Um, his proclamation is is interesting because if you read it just the way um, just just for the words, not knowing a lot of the context, it seems that Cyrus is saying, you know, the Eternal One, hey, you know, the the God that you Jews worship, He is the one who gave me all this power, gave me all this land, and so now I'm saying you can return. When you read between the lines and know a little bit more about Persian history, that actually isn't what Cyrus's proclamation is saying. This, <laughs> believe it or not, so often the case. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> Political um, correctness existed even back in the day. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting to note that Cyrus, through this whole thing, and possibly Darius, as you go into the next ruler, they were worshipers of Marduk. They, they were Persian. They did not worship the Eternal One. But uh, it was a polytheistic society, and they didn't really look down on other people who worshipped other gods. I mean, there were certainly, he thought Marduk was it, Marduk was superior. Um, but, you know, he recognized that these people worshipped this eternal one. Um, and he, the, the, this is the first place in the Bible that the epithet for God, um, God of heaven, is used. And yeah. that was actually borrowed um, as an epithet. Uh, it was originally an epithet of a Persian god, a god who was just sort of generally accepted by a lot of people, a celestial god. I'm sorry, the name oh. escapes me at the moment. But he was able to put into this proclamation, you know, he is a, you know, the god of heaven. And that wouldn't really offend anyone. 
at all huh. in, yeah. in, in the yeah. nation. So it is, it's a very, very measured, very political letter that was, that was sent out to his kingdom. Um, and it most likely was in response to a petition from the Jews. He wouldn't have just kind of come up with this and thrown it out there. Yeah, it kind of seems like um, for folks, for the occupying force, it kind of seems like to me it wouldn't have been advisable for him to have done this thing. It would have been like he would have done it in spite of his better instincts, maybe, because it seems like he would be worried about these folks. The last thing in the world he wants is is the place that he's occupying to start to reestablish its national identity and start to then again take offense to the fact that these occupying forces are still there does that make sense i mean would it have been it was almost as if cyrus was saying i really don't want to do this but i will and so let me just go ahead and and appear magnanimous now, even though this is not necessarily what I would want to do in the first Absolutely. place. I think the chronicler is intentionally drawing a connection between Cyrus and actually the pharaoh of Egypt. Um, Cyrus you know, doesn't have uh, his children killed or anything really negative happened to him, but it, it, he huh. is most likely a reluctant ruler who is instigating a second exodus if you will, of these people. He's okay. a foreign ruler. You know, oh. So that to me is the God part of this. It really makes, as you said, it makes no sense that Cyrus would have done this. Um, Cyrus was not, well, I mean, he wasn't strong armed into it um, as, as we uh-huh. see in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh. Um, so that, that's, yeah. that's the God, the God part of this, that is God working. Um, but not, that's pretty yeah, not to be mistaken though, with, you know, Cyrus being a God worshiper, that's taking it a step too far. Yeah. So, but it wasn't like there were plagues that led to Cyrus doing this. It wasn't like Cyrus finally relented and said, please leave here or please take your people back to Jerusalem where they belong or anything like that. It was almost like he was, he was, okay, I I can do this and I can try to spin this in such a way that it makes good sense for me to do it and that kind of stuff. So Cyrus was a spin doctor, even in his own right back then. He was, he was starting to make these changes. Okay. Okay, that helps. Would Persia, would they have been, would, like, would there have been armed guards in the street and that kind of thing for Persia? Would they have had a strong, would it have been a relatively peaceful time for the people in Jerusalem? Or would they have recognized that there was an occupying force with M16 slung over their arms as they walked down the street um, or that kind of thing? This is within the, uh, let's see. I mean, this is within, you know, the first few years of Cyrus taking over Babylonia. And I mean, just looking, uh-huh. looking at politics, I think those first few years are always tumultuous to some degree. You're, you're stamping out coups and, and all of that. So, mm. um, yeah, I, again, there's not a textual indication here. And I'm, I don't know that from history right off the top of my head, but I think it would be logical assume that yes they were aware that there had been a political upheaval and there was a change in leadership and obviously that change in leadership inspired somebody to make this request of Cyrus. I mean clearly they weren't going to do it of the, mm-hmm. the Babylonian ruler who was the one who came in, stole their stuff, killed them, ex- exported them to another country. But now that somebody else, you know, somebody sure. took the risk and said, "Well, let's see if this guy's any different." And and he was and then in response, you see in five and six, I guess in the start of six, it says all their neighbors gave them silver, gold, goods, cattle, and valuable things. So it's like there was, it's like there was this, 
display of mm-hmm. goodwill that took case in uh, that took place in all of this. The Jews were starting to return to Jerusalem. Their their neighbors wished them well in this process. It was like everybody seemed to be happy about this thing as it first I'm started. I'm not sure about the you know their uh, for lack of a better term, Gentile neighbors, I guess they're Persian neighbors, um, because that was part of Cyrus's mm-hmm. proclamation was that, you know, his Persian citizens were actually required to do that, to give them money to help. Yeah. And give I think them. once again, that that echoes back to Exodus, because you, you see the Egyptians okay. doing the same thing with the Hebrews mm-hmm. as they go out. Um, but so the chronicler, the chronicler saw that made it a point to include that. In an allusion to Absolutely. what happened in Egypt. And I think originally. you see later in Exodus the, the group of Hebrews who are looking at Moses and saying, we hate this. We were better off in Egypt. Why can't we turn around? You don't really have <laughs> the leeks and garlic. <laughs> I can't take and... any more manna. Um, but the, um, you, you don't have that faction here. It's, it really comes back. Before the actual Exodus returns, there there was a group of Jews, which are referred to in chapter 5, um, that simply didn't want to return. And so chapter 5 reads, the tribal leaders of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, and everyone motivated his or her spirit by the true God, prepared to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the Eternal's temple. So that um, implies the negative then, that there you know, were some Jews who maybe had so assimilated into Persian culture that they simply had no interest in returning. And um, that's interesting for the people there. But I think it also implies that the ones who were going back to Jerusalem were going with a real confidence of spirit, um, a, a real passion to do things right, to reestablish. Sense and um, they purpose. weren't being watered yeah. down, if you will, by you know the people who had been maybe tainted by Persian culture. So these were folks that were, they were hanging their lives on their understanding mm-hmm. of what they were supposed to be doing. And they were, they were saying we will, in essence, they were, mm-hmm. this was like a pilgrimage back. They were saying, we are going to change the course of our lives by returning to Jerusalem Absolutely. and make this thing come about. You point out there from verse five of chapter one, everyone motivated in his or her spirit. It, it is interesting to me to imagine that there were some folks who maybe had assimilated into Persian culture who would have said, yeah, not so much. I, I, I really – my Jewishness doesn't require me to go back to Jerusalem. I'm pretty mm-hmm. – I can be Absolutely. okay where I am, that kind of thing. So then in chapter 2 – The inclusion of this list, which is yeah. so incredibly meticulous or even tedious, I think that – just the simple inclusion of it is is telling and it shows how careful and how particular the people returning to Jerusalem were regarding how things were done so it sort of establishes the rigor with which this this thing was and um, I, the rigor and i would even say this maybe task the task was undertaken nature of it because they're going back to a place where I mean, nothing remains, and what they're taking with them are simply their genealogies, their families, which are included here, and at the end of chapter one, those few temple vessels and pieces of silver and things like that. So all of those are listed and enumerated, and they're clinging to that. Things that were formerly insignificant or uh, maybe regarding genealogies so well known that it didn't require listing um, is now 
really all that they have. It's mm. the last remaining vestige of their religion. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just telling huh. that it's in here. It just helps set the tone for the way the leaders are, are going into this transition. That's the way that people can lay claim mm-hmm. to their Jewish heritage. That's the way that they can they can establish two folks because it really didn't the fact that they maybe couldn't establish their Jewish heritage mm-hmm. when they were in uh, in Persia in exile in Persia nobody cared about who their father was grandfather great grandfather etc but now that they're returning to Jerusalem and reestablishing themselves as mm-hmm. as as God's chosen people these genealogies take on the the prom or I mean the uh, the importance that they maybe had before the exile, or they maybe even take on a heightened sense of that because this is they're sort of clinging to this as their their connection to way, that previous glory like that was Israel. In a way, it's kind of like an ancient resume, if you will. Um, these people are turning in their genealogies and saying, "This is why I'm able to return, and this is you know the job that I will fulfill when I get there." As a result of the people who went before me, so the pre, so it's, it's not even just about uh. qualifying to get back to Jerusalem. It's also about you know applying for the job for the position that you will fill there, um, really in society, the way f- the fabric of society will will be rebuilt. And so, the descendants of a particular line uh, would be known then for Absolutely. the thing that their line would supply. Is that what you're saying? Like, like if if I was the son of Anathoth, let's say from uh, verse 23, if I was that guy's son, would I be known then as someone who would be a skilled textile worker, most most specifically, or, or is it that kind of an idea? Like, like my dis, my genealogy would speak to my Yes, um, less less so set, for set, the laity, kind of, but certainly okay. once you get into the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, um, mm-hmm. when sure, it, sure. Uh, the people who, who fulfilled a role in the cultic life of Israel, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. The, and the temple service. That, yeah, I think, yeah. is really emphasized okay. uh, once you get to verses um, 61, 62, 63, where you see um, people who are excluded okay. because they cannot prove their genealogy. 62, those folks could not locate their genealogies. Therefore, they were considered ritually an imp- impure and excluded from the priesthood in case they should taint the Lord's new temple. Talk with us a little bit about that. Why Why was it so important for these folks to be excluded, particularly well, these I, folks I think who it were goes claiming back to priestly what we were talking about just descent. a minute ago, the whole idea that there's very little left of the of of the former Jerusalem society and they are just being so careful to create it exactly the way that God wants it done. Um, you'll see as, um, as you get into chapter three, which I think we're, we'll do, uh, next time, um, even the way that they go about acquiring materials, building the temple, all of that is done the same way that David acquired materials and Solomon built the temple. Whatever they have, um, they are following so very closely mm. because they, they, they see this as a, well, no, this is, it is a commission from God and they want to execute it as perfectly as they possibly can. And, and if that means, you know, the, these three priestly lines, sure. you know, they, they can't 100% prove it. Maybe everyone knows that they are telling the truth. 
works. I mean, maybe everyone, no one doubts that they should do it, but they don't have the evidence for it. That 1% chance that they could possibly mm-hmm. get involved in, in the religious activity of Jerusalem and start to taint things, that 1% chance, what makes the leadership exclude them. Um, I, I think initially that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I think anytime any of us embarks on you know, a new expedition, we are very careful with the details. But this is cautionary as well, because whenever there's a concern for for pedigree or for purity um, over time, I'd say, especially with the second generation, um, Mm -hmm. a sense of pride and superiority can develop. And uh, that certainly happens with the Jews in in the second generation. And I almost see this as foreshadowing of that. Huh. Well, let's step back for just a second. Those folks who are they're they're attempting to establish their their pedigree, the folks who are overseeing this project have said, you know what? I'm sorry, we can't have this. We can't have you be a part of this. We're going to have to exclude you from temple worship. I mean, excuse me from the from the process that they would from the role they would play in temple worship. And it seems to me like that speaks. Um, that speaks to the the concern that they would have as being folks who would be returning from exile. They would be they would have seen firsthand how watered down their Jewish nature, their Jewish identity could be when they were completely uh, absorbed or assimilated into into Persian culture. And so it was it, it was. Um, that would have been a thing that would have been very much on their radar screen. That would have been a thing where they would have said, um, we need to be particularly careful as we move forward that we don't let anything creep in that would take us back the, the direction of the place that we've come from. We've left, we've seen what that looks like firsthand. Let's make sure that we do everything we possibly can to not, let's exercise an abundance of caution so that we don't get, watered down so that we don't let we don't start the process of watering down all over again by who we allow back in so and then we have this this notion that uh in case they should taint the lord's temple uh the lord's new temple and so it's not as if those folks were then excluded from worshiping in the temple it's not as if they were excluded from the community or from jewish life it was just that one area where um you know admittedly a very important area this would have been the the this would have been how those folks identified themselves they would have thought and it would have been terribly unfortunate for those folks to not have been able to produce these genealogies it meant everything about your jewish identity um is unsubstantiated and so you're going to have to you're going to have to sort of make do with your jewishness in a different way than you thought you were heading. And I can imagine that would have been just a terrible Absolutely. blow to these folks. It had three, to be personally these devastating. Lines, these three families. Yeah, yeah. But then also that notion that you brought in there, and I didn't mean to, to lessen your point, but the, the idea of how the ones who could produce those genealogies, the ones who could have all of their credentials lined up, if we're not careful, human nature is such that we take a certain measure of um, of pride, a certain measure of being puffed up, even though, even though it was only, uh, it was through no quality of those individuals that they had these, 
it's not like they were recognized for their work. They were only recognized for the fact that they were born into the right families. They were recognized for the fact that, hey, congratulations, you had a silver spoon in your mouth. They Man, did. you're the one. Hey, that's great. But they did have that. Mm-hmm. And their children and their children then did have that as well. And the point that you're making is folks can get can get really blown up with that if they're not careful. They can they can uh, there's a sense of superiority that comes in. There's a sense of false of false pride of Hey, look at me! Uh, Absolutely, I got what you don't have. Um, God must like me better. If you want to you know, take it down the road, even into the New Testament, those those seeds um, are really the foundation of where you get the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people who hold themselves and their pedigree and their knowledge above the other Jews who are around them. So it definitely came to fruition. All right. Well, what's the good news for the exiles coming out of this discussion uh-huh. today? Talking about those three priestly lines. Um, they could not locate the genealogies. Therefore, they were considered ritually impure and excluded from the priesthood in case they would taint mm-hmm. the Lord's new temple. Um, but the extension of that is they weren't excluded from life. And I am certain that God went on to use them. So the good news is no matter what your pedigree is, no matter what your genealogy is, you have a place in God's kingdom. And if you are willing to set aside your pride and your idea of where you should be in a leadership role or within the church, then God can use you. God will use you and um, you'll be happier for it. I put myself in those folks' shoes and every Humanly speaking, every understanding that I have about my connection to God is linked into those genealogies, and so I have this—I have this undesirable clinging to those genealogies, and to have those yanked away from me, and to have every understanding of my connection to God yanked away from me would just be devastating. But at the same time, it's kind of a thing of of God saying. Am I the am I the source of your worship? Am I the object of your faith, or is it your understanding of me that is the object of your faith? And I think we need to take that yes. as well today. The gospel is so much bigger than we give God credit for. The gospel is so much better news for everyone than we give God credit for. And and the people listening to this podcast may be in a situation where they've had their understandings of things yanked away. Maybe it's a scriptural understanding. Maybe it's a, just the, maybe it's a marriage that's fallen apart. Maybe it's, a, you know, your grand, the baby's grandparents are trying to take, are trying to take her away from you. Uh, God can be at work in every one of those circumstances in our lives. He is intimately acquainted with every one of those circumstances in our lives. And this relationship that we have is with him and not with the rules and regulations and, and, uh, and pure lines uh, that we can identify. And I, that let that be an encouragement to you. If it can be, I, I, I don't know where you are today. I don't know who you are today that's listening to this, but I, but God is with you in this thing. And the good news, the gospel is so much better than we give it credit for. And it means so much more to us than, than where we stand. Um, next time, I think we'll take a look at um, Ezra Woo-hoo! 3. Hey, tell us what uh, we're looking ahead to Chapter next time. 4, verse 5. Um, what we looked at today 
I see it as um, the struggles within the Jewish community as they're moving as they're moving back to Jerusalem. In this next section, we'll look at next time. Uh, you start to see the outside groups that they are clashing with, um, that being the Israelites who did not go into exile and have remained in Jerusalem the whole time, plus uh, this interesting little group um, coming from the former Northern Kingdom, who um, are also Persians but who are attempting to claim some sort of relationship with these people. And um, anyway, so this time we looked at problems within. Next time we're going to look at problems coming at them from without. You can find Amanda Hope Haley at her website, amandahopehaley.com. You can find A.J. Farley at his blog, wornoutbibles.blogspot.com. Both of us are also available on various social media platforms. Unless otherwise noted, scripture quotations are taken from The Voice. Copyright 2008 and 2009, Ecclesia Bible Society. Thanks for listening.